0: Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses. Hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we wanna talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my huge pleasure to be joined on the duo today by Dr. Lucy Mackay. Lucy is the founder and CEO of Medics for Rare Diseases, which is a grassroots charity that's looking to really create attitude change and change on the ground uh, for people with rare diseases. Lucy, welcome to the pod.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Brilliant. So you come from, and I guess grew up in a world that was where rare disease was like a big thing. before becoming the CEO of of Medics for Rare Diseases, but maybe if we can start with just give us a bit of uh, context about that world that you grew up in.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I never knew. I've never known life without an understanding of rare disease. My eldest brother had a rare X-linked condition, and he died before I was born. And my parents, and and particularly my my mum created uh, or founded a patient advocacy group, a charity called the UK MPS Society, along with other hugely invested volunteers. And that started at our kitchen table. It's just classic <laughs> kitchen table organisation history here. And that's 40 years old. The MPS Society is 40 years old this year. And I'm not quite 40. So <laughs> I am. Um, I that's all I've ever known. And so i had this kind of unique situation where i grew up in rare disease advocacy but the person who had instigated that that being my brother he was no longer around and actually my family were putting all of its energy into the charity as a way to create a support group a sharing network to go on and bring Uh, scientific knowledge, medical knowledge together in one place, and then to go on to drive research as well. And that's how I kind of grew up. It was kind it was going to family conferences and and my mum never really took a day off. So in the holidays, I went to visit with all these families with MPS children, and it was a really unique experience, not always a happy one, of course. The outlook for MPS conditions is greater these days, but back then, you know, not it wouldn't be that irregular that someone I was playing with last year at the conference was no longer with us the year after. So it was a, it was it was an interesting um, period. So yeah, that's their kind of um, the
0: background. Intense.
1: Intense is <laughs> definitely a word. You know when you're in it, you don't know any different
0: yeah i'm I'm picturing you as a child putting letters and envelopes and kind of sticking stamps on them and then kind of walking down to the post box and like knocking on people's doors and things like that.
1: oh yeah, oh yeah, my grandparents did all the newsletters, and you know newsletter the magazine was going out they were all at my grandparents being sorted we used to I used to do the care plans for the conferences we used to do like volunteering for the conferences i um uh, pushing i think i believe sadly she's gone so it's hard to check these things now but i think my mum was an original trustee on jeans for jeans and we used to have all these little pin badges of these cute babies and their little jeans falling off and stuff i used to sell those at um school and yeah and i did work for mps and did some fun, did some like fundraising stuff for Jeans for Jeans. Did some scientific writing for Well Child, but it was all just that was kind of my my norm growing up, and um, it only really, it only became obvious how different it was when I went into university and went into
0: medical school. Yeah. And so without wanting to play the armchair psychologist too much, it doesn't seem that unlikely that you would become a medic, right?
1: (laughs) First of all, I did genetics. I did human genetics at the University of Nottingham, which I loved. I loved it so much. I was so sad when that course ended and back then we were I remember my final exams we were learning about this thing called um, next generation sequencing or something <laughs> you might know something
0: about it. they were like it's going to be huge believe us
1: they <laughs> so, were well, yeah we were writing our final papers about it and um and this company called Illumina and um yeah so I loved that and then Afterwards, I kind of looked at genetic counselling and and medicine, and decided to go into medicine, and got into the graduate entry program at Barts River London, which was a brilliant medical school to go to and a great course.
0: And what was it that you loved so much about the human genetics course? Just like paint a paint a picture of that.
1: Oh, I mean, it was just it's just. I just think it's fascinating I just think it's fascinating and also I think I guess because I had come from this background of knowing people who have genetic conditions running in their families I was aware of the importance to to people the whole way through there were very few people like mentioned in the course. I think we had one lecture that was about actual real life people in medical situations.
0: Oh really? Right.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well I suppose there's population genetics, but it was it was far more kind of molecular and looking at the evolution of a single gene and things like this. But um I I loved how it gave answers that are and I suppose now I think about it, it's probably even more true now that you're looking at evidence of things that other people are debating <laughs> and it made me sound a bit smart so that was always good. Um, I remember being in a philosophy, I, I got to do an optional module in philosophy and the philosophy module was about uh, evolution and I remember in the first lesson the philosophy teacher who was couldn't have been more different to my genes genomes and chromosomes lecturers i tell you he came in and he just started the lecture Who thinks that who believes in evolution Who thinks it's right because i don't i don't see any evidence of it and i put up my hand and i said have you ever read origin of species on the origin of species and he was like no i haven't (laughs) touche and he came back for the next week, and he brought it with him, and he'd read it. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think there's some really there's some answers to be found in in genetics, and I, I think I really enjoyed that.
0: That is absolutely hilarious. Um, and that's a, that's a great coaching moment right there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> don't get, don't pretend you know it all, because you might have like the ge- the geneticist in your philosophy course.
0: And so you were, at that point as a student, also a sort of social entrepreneur, right, with students for rare diseases. Was that when you were doing the human genetics course or was that when you were a medic student?
1: You know, at Nottingham, I did start a uh, society for like genetics, obviously. It wasn't until I got to medical school at Barts in the London. So we're now talking about 2011 or something that I started Barts of the London Society for Rare Diseases. And really, it was because everything I've just said about my past and my experiences just had to go on hold while learning medicine. And this is nothing against Barts of London, which you know is I loved my university, and but it's just about the way that the curriculum is set up to teach about uh, lifelong rare conditions. Particularly uh, as well, genetic lifelong genetic conditions, and I found it difficult to square my experiences as a as a family member, albeit having you know come along after my brother, um, with how these conditions were taught about if they were taught about, and the words that were used around diagnostic thinking. I couldn't square those two things.
0: Bring bring that to life for us a a tiny bit. So, like, what what kind of um, things jarred for you in the way that that was described?
1: Things like, if any rare conditions were covered, they were covered. You know, they were maybe at the end of a PowerPoint, and it was um, and it was like, there's also these conditions, but you'll never see them. So there's no point. Just don't. There's no point learning about them or if they were covered they were covered in a way that's like for an mcq for a multiple choice question they're being used as a method to teach a process for example a method to teach a inheritance pathway in genetics they weren't being used to teach how that person is going to be affected be impacted by having that condition and it's You know i have to be careful these weren't fully realized on thoughts by me in 2011 these are fully realized now because of the amount of work i've put into trying to look at this problem but what i what was jarring was things like that and common things are common and that feeling of but if we are starting people from the very beginning to not even consider that people with rare conditions are, are even worth letting into your field of understanding then we've shut the door on them and then i think uh, the last one was that feeling of you know having a lecture by someone talking about a condition that my brother had that i know how it's come on in time and i know more than you and you know, it's always important for me to say it's it's not the individuals that in this. And I understand, I think I'm lucky to have worked, gone through medical school, worked as a doctor and had this experience so I can be empathetic, I think, on both sides. I understand why these things come in, but it doesn't, but I, 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 I'm suggesting that there's another another way to do rare disease education.
0: Yeah. And it's it's such an interesting point. I'm constantly inspired and made to feel sort of lazy and whatever when I talk to individuals with chronic conditions, including many rare diseases, or parents of kids with rare diseases who are so smart and and so have have educated themselves so much about. The condition or whatever, like it doesn't surprise me at all that you're sitting there and they're actually going, "Hold on, I know much more about this condition than this lecturer." Because for the lecturer, it's one of twenty thousand things that's like on their mind. Whereas if it's your life, you're you're you become such an expert in it, right? It's it's incredibly inspiring to see how much I mean, autodidacticism is a fancy word, but like whatever the you know that is how how much people really can you know bring themselves um, on that journey. And so you mentioned you mentioned language there and how people talk about these things this is something that we've thought about quite a lot um, at genomics England over time and recently our participant panel have worked with others to pull together some thoughts into a little pamphlet that we've published yesterday actually called uh, language and terminology around how we talk about some of these conditions the very phrase rare diseases Is in some ways problematic because obviously, for people who are aware, who are in this world, we know that collectively rare diseases are not rare at all. And in fact, the very first guest we ever had on the podcast was Eric Topple, who has this great phrase every disease is a rare disease because it's a disease in you and it's interacting with you. So, this idea that there's a rare disease and there's a common disease is kind of nonsense because everything is rare in the context of a given human being. This is a massive field, but like, what are your thoughts on? How we can get better at talking about these kinds of conditions and you know both uh, as conditions themselves and also in terms of like the the lives of the real human beings who are living with them every day
1: yeah I mean I'll caveat this with with, with a statement that as far as I know I don't have a rare condition but from my experiences doing M- with M4RD and I'm always happy to be guided differently I think the key comes down to there's a person talk about the person and in like i used to volunteer for a center for people with epilepsy it it was it's been okay in the past to call people epileptic or even an epileptic there's a person in there so it's a per so someone's a person with epilepsy and that's what i try to stick to and then the other thing i try to do is emulate what the person says to me if they say that they have a syndrome, if they say they have a condition, if they say they have a rare disease, that's what I give back to them if we're one-on-one. I think though, it also I it also depends on my audience because when I Medics for Rare Diseases is, is faces medical professionals and medical students, our work and our messaging is for them for the benefit of people living with rare conditions. But we need to make our messages signal to doctors and future doctors, this is for you. And so, you know, sometimes when we're doing things, we're using the words patients because we're putting them in that context. But if we're not in that context, we're talking about them as people. So I think these things change over time. And there's also the whole getting rid of the word disease entirely, which is in and because lots of people don't identify with the word disease. And then, you know, rare, lots of people with Ehlers-Danlos would, would say, you know, they, they may not want to be in the uh, rare disease category, or say I was talking to a gentleman with sickle cell disease the other day, and he doesn't, cons- he, you know, he wouldn't think or identify as having a rare disease because lots of people he knows has sickle cell disease. And it it comes back to that point that to the person, it's, it's not rare, it's happening to them. And hopefully eventually we get to the point that the prevalence of your condition does not affect how you're treated. The only reason we need to categorize these conditions by their prevalence is because they are not getting enough attention historically or currently. And at some point, and I guess, you know, moving more towards precision medicine, hopefully that starts fading away. And until then, being respectful to how those living with conditions day in, day out, how they refer to themselves. And I like that quote you give because uh you know the whole zebra thing in rare disease. So the adage, if if you hear hooves, think horse, not zebra. And Really early on, it just blew. It just <laughs> made no sense to me because it depends on where you are. I've done a, quite a lot of. <laughs> if
0: like, you're in the savannah I'm in
1: Tanzania, and I didn't see a single horse. <laughs> I saw a lot of zebra, though, and um, and they tend to all come together at the same time as well. And and then you know I don't want to extend the analogy too far. And I think maybe this is where the genetics degree comes in. And if you're thinking about population genetics. You have to be thinking about your population. And if you're saying, okay, sure, there are 7,000 rare diseases, you can't know about all of them, but a significant population of people living with rare diseases actually have a hand in comparison, relatively a handful of those rare diseases. And actually, a huge part of that population are children and they're going to be accessing healthcare a lot. So if you then start walking into a hospital you've changed your population because you're in front you're now in a hospital with people who are actively seeking or maybe inactively but who are seeking health care or requiring health care so you're not on a population basis anymore you then walk into a pediatric department and your chances of coming across someone with a rare condition spring much higher if you're in a child development clinic <laughs> And or if that child then has epilepsy or developmental delay, and I really don't think it takes like someone that smart, <laughs> I'm not that smart, but uh, you know, it doesn't take much to bring down that argument to, to whether that's whether that's here through who think zebra or common things are common. And um so yes. I think in terms of language that medics for rare diseases is trying to uh adjust is things like common things are common so is rare disease and trying to get rid of weird and wonderful these are not people are not stamps to collect in books they are not I saw a and then the name of the disease they are people it's not weird and wonderful to them it's real and it's rare and it has a serious impact is a is another kind of phrase we'd love to start diluting out So, uh, yeah, I think language is really
0: important. So that's huge, right? And I mean, you've also hopefully, I think, placed that in the context of medical students. Um, I know that Medics for Red Diseases has actually produced, you know, its own educational materials around this, the sort of 101 course on um, how to think about red diseases. Like, tell us a bit more about that. How does that complement the more traditional kind of course that a bunch of medical students will be on, does it what does it add and what do, what do you hope that'll achieve sorry five questions at once but there we go
1: love it no that's fine i yeah so rare disease 101 is a free uh, online learning module so it's just the module it's on a platform called m4rd learn which is expanding but rare disease 101 is free and online and it's eight lessons that can teach you the basics that you need to know about rare disease without teaching you about a single rare disease. And it was produced by um, a whole group of people like multi-sector, cross-sector individuals within rare disease, lots of patient advocacy groups uh, helped create it. And it's actually made in Moodle by my trustee who has two rare conditions himself, and really, it's what we've been doing for a long time. Put in a right fine. If we can't get this into curricula right now, we're going to make our own version and create a proof of concept to show it can be done, and then try and roll that out. But it's really based on we've been working with the Royal Society of Medicine, I think, since 2014, and um, and actually Genomics England. have have been represented at a good portion of those uh, meetings in February called the Unusual Suspects. And we've been really lucky to have Dr. Ellen Thomas and Dr. Richard Scott speak before. And we've taken what, what those events have contained and basically put it into an online module so you can do it anywhere. And what that is, is some basic statistics. Can you define a rare disease? Because most of the data that comes out more and more frequently suggests that medical professionals overestimate how rare each rare disease is and underestimate how common rare disease is in the population. So we've got to reframe rare disease. If it can't even be defined by the people who might stop that diagnostic odyssey in its tracks, then we've got a serious issue. And then we talk about what the diagnostic odyssey is, what common challenges of living with a rare disease are, and provide some some practical tools, things that already exist. A paper by Will Evans et al. a few years ago found that just 4% of the GPs who were answering a question about understanding genomics had ever accessed a rare disease resource online like Orphanet or OMIM or something. I won't suggest their statistics on how many had heard about the 100,000 Genomes Project. <laughs> but, you know, so these things, there's, there's tools out there, they exist, they've existed a long time, but they, they need to be known about. And we do the role of genomics in it just because genomics is important, so important to rare disease. It's not all of rare disease. And most of it is the genomics education programme, because they know what they're talking about on this. Um.
0: I was going to say, how do, how do you guys interface with kind of Kate Chatten Brown and Health Education England? Hopefully, more uh, and more folks.
1: Yeah, hopefully more and more. I think and um, genomics. You know, lots of lots of people who have rare diseases. Genomics will be relevant to them at some point in their life, but not everyone with a rare disease, and therefore, and also genetic services aren't you you know aren't going to necessarily be what that patient needs throughout the rest of their life as they go on you know for example, my trustee that diagnosis is kind of well gone for him, and it's more about coordination of care and treatment and things so yeah there need there needs to be overlapping collaboration but yeah definitely so yeah we 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 can't do genomics, we need to head over to the people who can do it. Um, and then really importantly, patient advocacy groups. You know, the, we, as I've spoken about today, if there's one piece of advice I can give any doctor or any medical student who doesn't know what to do with their patient who has a rare condition, Google the condition and put organisation or charity at the end of it and find the peer support that they need. And lots of charities also support professionals and have lots of resources that have been tailored over many, many years. So patient advocacy groups is really important. So we and when we do events, we basically bring all of those things in. You we bring in the stats, we bring in patient voice, lived experience, a bit on genomics, something on patient advocacy, and something from a clinician. And we've kind of piled that all up, put it in a neat bow and stuck it online for everyone.
0: Fantastic. And it sounds like the course is clearly relevant to medical students but um it sounds also like it's quite sort of relevant and accessible to just other people who are interested in the field right does one does one have to be a medical student to like access it or get stuff out of it or is it do you think it's more broadly relevant as well
1: no it it's definitely aimed at medical students and medical professionals so when we use language in it we're talking about you your patient that kind of thing but no it's it's widely accessible and uh we get a lot of users from uh from different professions we also really welcome people living with rare conditions their families advocacy groups to come in check it out give us any feedback, because it has to stay relevant to the patient population that we're trying to serve. Otherwise, there's no point doing it. So yeah, it's definitely accessible. And you know, we will hopefully be working with rare disease nurses network in the future. They're just getting a new CEO, but to create a more nurse and midwife specific version, we're actually working with two universities in Australia to Create an Australian version of Rare Disease 101 for their two medical schools out there. So it's definitely translatable. But the end destination for this is that this becomes something that training institutions do. This is something that, you know, at the moment we might cherry pick a handful of rare diseases in our curricula and use them to demonstrate certain. Uh, medical, le- I don't know. Demonstrate lessons that have been chosen with those rare diseases, or just covering a handful of what people think are the someone decides is the salient rare diseases to include. And my my rather radical thinking is just get get rid of most of that, unless you're you know you're using it to teach a specific concept and you know what you're teaching with that rare condition. Just get rid of it and free up a load of time stop including that you'll never see it statement and instead just give some broad rare diseases training you know I talk about how the you know you can have patient with immunocompromisation for many reasons hopefully soon after presenting to you you'll find out what that reason is why they're immunocompromised but when a patient is immunocompromised the average doctor should be able to have some concepts come to their mind about why they might be, what that might impact them, what decisions they might have to make in their management, what they might need to do next. And that's what we're asking medics and healthcare professionals in general to do, to say to their patient, I don't know about your particular rare condition, but I do understand that rare conditions can have a deep and pervasive impact on your life it can lead to you know deteriorating mental health loss of education loss of um, employment out of pocket expenses so that you can go to lots of different appointments that aren't necessarily coordinated you might not have access to treatment and research is probably going to be something you're quite interested in so let me read up about your condition and let me get back to you and we can make a plan
0: Yeah it's incredibly powerful and this is such a huge area what for you are the kind of straws in the wind so to speak or like the lead indicators that what you're doing is working like what would you like to see happening out there?
1: (laughs) Well in, in education alone
0: yeah i think i think you said something earlier about you know if we're when we're truly successful we won't need to organize we won't need to exist as an organization that's probably like quite that's like the final final you know summit of the mountain like what what are some of the signs that you're making progress up the mountain
1: oh there's so many i mean chris when i first started doing this i could go to rare disease events and get pushback on whether you can teach medics about rare disease (laughs) you know it has it's it's changed the openness of people who of of medics who come and follow us and the number of people coming to our events they're all indicating there is a shift in thinking for sure this is a a really far more positive environment than when I started this you know in its earliest form in 2011 and I think um sometimes when you're getting closer and closer, it can feel harder and harder, or it feels like you're actually getting further away, but you're really getting to the to the crux of where we might need to make change. And but it's all really exciting. I mean, look, the UK Rare Diseases Framework highlighted um increasing healthcare professional awareness as one of four priorities. That is really, really important. And I'm really grateful to be on the UK Rare Diseases Forum that can help advise um, from that perspective. Like you like I say, we've been working with Health Education England on the rare disease. They've got a new rare disease hub that they've revamped and it looks really great. And we're creating some materials with them. And yeah, and like I said, hopefully we can work more and more and more together and Hopefully getting into medical schools, getting into the Royal Colleges is the next step. And but it's it's getting there. And if you had told me in 2011 that this is what I would be doing, I would have I would be completely unbelieving. I cannot believe how far it's come.
0: It's that's hugely, um, hugely, hugely inspiring.
1: And I have to say, you know, sometimes we are a small charity. So basically until about a year ago, I was the only person being paid to work on Medics for Rare Diseases and except for some like ad hoc help here and here. And we've now got three other employees. And so to an extent we're, we're held back from our ambitions, partly because we, a lot of what we do is relationship building. You know, we've got Rare Disease 101 now and we need those relationships in those training institutions to be able to say to to be able to get it in there and explain why it's required. Um, so, yeah, networking is really important for us.
0: Super, super cool. Uh, I'm hugely inspired by what you're doing. I think it's amazing. And um, it, it, this conversation reminds me of that phrase about never doubt that a small committed group of people can change the world because actually that's the only way that the world ever gets changed (laughs) you know it's great and it's i mean full kudos to you for um for building this and and making that happen
1: well thank you although in in all honesty you know i'm the person that people see but i have such a dedicated trustee board who can move fast which helps us move fast and on top of that the number of people who have helped us get here is really uh, you know it'd be too long to to mention i mean even if you go to rare disease 101 and you look at the people who collaborated on that the number of groups who collaborated on that it's just so many and really really importantly we can't do this without patient voice and patient advocacy because otherwise we would be not necessarily getting the message right and it becomes who is this actually for and like i say if we're not making a tangible difference to people with living with rare conditions then um you know why are we doing this like um yeah so a lot of i I have to say thanks to everyone out there who's helped get m4rd to where it is today for sure
0: well that's great so one of the things we're trying to do with the podcast is bring A variety of voices into the conversation about genomics as it becomes more and more sort of mainstream if you think about either themes we should be touching on or people that we should get onto the pod to hear their stories or hear their perspective like what would you what would you like to hear more of
1: I think it has to it's got to be patient voice it's always because I used to say when we were doing live events, people come for the professor and they stay for the patient. You know, when we were trying to advertise to medical students uh, back when we, were med- when we were medical students ourselves, you, you know, if you can get a prof in there and they're going to teach about this subject that they might have heard, that's going to get bums on seats. But, the, and, but it's the patient stories, it's the lived experience that really changes how people think about this. And essentially when we're trying to do our teaching, we try to use, we're we're disease agnostic. So we teach about rare disease, not rare diseases as individual entities. But what we do is use patient stories to get core messages across. And within that, you're gonna hear about certain rare diseases. You're not gonna hear it's oh sorry this is not okay for this is not great for genomics england podcast the, the g word but you're not going to hear it's caused by a micro deletion on chromosome blah 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 blah. you're going to hear about how that rare disease really affects that person on a day-to-day basis and really impacts their life and learn a bit about the disease on the way and that, so i i think i think that's just really key in every in everything we do. But in everything we do, balance is important and there's a lot of um stakeholders out there who have wear multiple hats. And I love I love working with them because you get like <laughs> a two for a two for one. And there's you know, so I think the other side of this is something that I talk to the rare disease community about is and and also within policy type things, when we talk about doctors this and and the GP that, have are we representing in that group a GP or a, a doctor in that situation? Just like when we talk about patients this and patients that, we think about having patient, you know, you need patient voice, we have to have lived experience. What's the lived experience of being a GP with 10 minutes in this situation? And so I think the other side to it is trying to break out of our rare diseases all encompassing bubble and go to people where that isn't the case and learn from them as well about what directions we could be taking.
0: Stories from the front line. This is where the, the real action is happening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Lucy, thank you so much. We will definitely uh, keep trying to bring those voices to the fore. It's been great hearing your story and uh, your voice today. Thanks so much for making the time and look forward to seeing where Medics for Red Diseases goes next.
1: It's my absolute pleasure. And um, this is, you know, genetic, human genetics student Lucy's life goals. So <laughs> thank you for having me.
0: that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G-Word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G-Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.